Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, leading people into the Christ-centered life. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. We are in Matthew chapter 5 today. Grab your Bibles or your phones or whatever and meet me there. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 970 in that Bible. This is a two-parter sermon. We're going to talk about this this week and next week. So if you miss next week, you can go online and catch up. Uh, Please make sure you do because the two go together. It'll be hard to understand the whole topic with just one message. We are in a series that we have called Roots, looking at some of our Anabaptist roots. What does it mean to be an Anabaptist church? And we've been talking about the various streams of Christianity around the world. There's a Catholic stream and a Protestant stream and an Orthodox stream and an Anabaptist stream. And we uh, are not saying that Anabaptism is right and other ones are wrong, but that's just the stream that we swim in. Those are the convictions that we have as a Mennonite Brethren Church. And each stream brings blessing to the body of Christ in different ways. Uh, we honor and can learn from all. All of them, uh, this is just what we happen to be. And so as we talk about a few of the different uh, distinctives of what makes an Anabaptist an Anabaptist, Anabaptists are very close to the Protestant branch of the church. Much of the theology is the same. And each stream generally believes the same stuff about things like the cross and the resurrection and who Jesus is and the Bible. But each stream would just maybe emphasize things a different way or put their focus on things in a bit of a different way. And so as we've been talking about Anabaptism, uh, there has been Nothing uh, that the other streams don't also believe, as we've been talking about being Christ-centered and uh, discipleship and separation from the world, all churches would believe that in some extent. Uh, Anabaptists might just emphasize something more or just in a different way. But what we're going to talk about today is not like all the others. This one is different. And we are going to take this week and next week to talk about the principle of pacifism. And Anabaptists really are the only stream that emphasizes this. That's not to say that some Catholics and Protestants won't, uh, but it's just not a major emphasis for them. So I grew up in the Protestant church. I was a Pentecostal, and we never heard pacifism literally ever. It was just never taught. It was never brought up. There were never sermons on it. Uh, It was not something that was practiced. It was not something that was encouraged. And uh, so this was brand new to me when I went off to Bible college. And part of Bible college is you start to learn what other streams of the church are thinking and, and how they come to those conclusions. And so I ran into this teaching there for the first time when I was maybe 20 or so. And I thought it was crazy. I thought it was nonsense. It was so different from anything that I had ever been told. And some of you today, this might be the first time that it's being laid out for you, and it might seem crazy if you've never heard it before. But as we go through this, I don't get too nervous preaching anymore, but I was nervous this week coming into this topic, and that's just because uh, I never heard pacifism growing up. I became to be convinced myself personally uh, from God's word that it was the way that uh, Christ followers should lean, and I know that not all believe that way, and I've had the conversation many times, and you know, the conversation does not always go great when this topic comes up. And so at a previous church, it came up at a board meeting one time, and I don't know how we got on it, but uh, there was a board member who was adamantly opposed to it, and as I was trying to explain, you know, well, we look at this scripture from Jesus and this scripture from, from the New Testament, and uh, he started, you know, slamming his hand on the desk and eventually stormed out. He was not very peaceful, as we talked about peace. But, you know, what he threw back at me, which is what often comes up, is, uh, okay, so Hitler invades Canada. This is always the argument. Hitler invades Canada. You do nothing. You just sit at home and just let Hitler take over. And I said, well, no, that's not what 
pacifism actually is at all. You have to do something, but, but to follow the peace teaching of Jesus, for those who believe in this, would be to say, we are going to choose peaceful means to stand up against evil. We're not going to participate in death and destruction and violence. And he was having none of it, and he stormed out of the room, and we were able to make up uh, afterwards, and it was fine. But this conversation doesn't always go smoothly. And we all have instincts for self-preservation. We all have instincts to protect others, uh, probably. And so uh, this, for some people, this teaching seems to step on that. And I don't think it should. But, uh, but th- when we're coming at it with sort of our preconceived ideas and preconceived notions, uh, it doesn't always necessarily get received well. And so I know in our church, even in our church, even though we are a, a pacifist, a peacemaker church, there are not uh, not everybody agrees with that. Not everybody is on the same page. And I'm just going to ask as we engage in this over the next couple of weeks that everybody is open-minded on both sides and everybody is willing to listen to the other side and everyone is willing to look at the scriptures and everyone is willing to wrestle through this together. I said in the first service, whichever side of the debate you land on, I'm inviting you to enter into a wrestling match for the next couple of weeks because uh, there are scriptures that are tough to deny and then there's also real life and, and what do these things look like in real life. But this lands under the category of something we've talked about several times over the last couple years, which is that it is a disputable matter. People in the body of Christ aren't all in agreement on this particular one. For those who believe in peacemaking and pacifism on one side, for others who maybe believe in just war uh, or, or proportional response or things like that. But a disputable matter is something that we are allowed to disagree on. It is not a deal breaker. It is not a uh, core doctrine of the church. And because of that, if we're in a disagreement with with each other on it. Our role is to lovingly disagree, respectfully disagree. No one is a a better or worse Christian because of this. And that's something else that can happen in this conversation is that uh, even in our church, there are people who have served and served Canada and who have fought in wars. And uh, sometimes people think when you talk about this topic and you talk about the peace teachings of Jesus, you are somehow implying that people who disagree are not good Christians or are not following Jesus well. And that could not be further from the truth. And while we might disagree with whether it's okay to kill for a cause, we can always honor those who are willing to die for a cause, especially those who are willing to die for other people and who are willing to lay their life down. So there is no dishonor or disrespect intended, but what we're going to do today is lay out uh, why do Anabaptists believe in peacemaking? Where does that come from biblically? Uh, And what we're going to do next week is we are going to then talk much more practically. So this week is kind of the theory and the scripture. Next week is what does that look like in real life and how can we navigate this? So I want to show you a video clip just before we get to our text today. It's from the movie Gandhi because uh, when you're talking about Jesus, what better than to show a Hindu and what he thinks? But Gandhi famously was nonviolent and he famously was nonviolent as his country was under the oppression of the British Empire at that time and he fought for the freedom of his country but he did it entirely nonviolently and he did that because he was inspired by the teachings of Jesus. He, as far as we know, never became a follower of Jesus, but was struck by the peace teachings of Jesus and organized a peaceful, nonviolent revolution that ultimately won freedom uh, for the Indian people without a bloody civil war, without a bloody revolution, without lots of loss of life and destruction. And so this is from the movie Gandhi, and in this clip, uh, he's walking down the street. He's a young man. He's walking with a Christian uh, priest, and they are talking about the scripture because as they're walking down the street in a, a very racist area, there are three racist people who are yelling racial slurs at him. We've edited the racial slurs out, uh, but their path is blocked by those who are mocking them. So let's take a look at Gandhi. 
So what could have been a conflict gets disarmed as they follow in the way of Jesus. And Gandhi, in the time in which he lived, the British Empire was ruling over India, and I'm British. That's my background, and those of us who are British, we have some things to answer for in history. Uh, We did not always do well, especially as it came to conquesting other people. And so India is oppressed and in chains and and in a, a bad spot because of the British Empire. And Gandhi, who saw the British come in and saw the the violence that they committed against the Indian people, the materialism and greed with which they took advantage of the Indian people in terms of slavery and their natural resources and things, famously said this. He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. That's a good slap in the face. That's a good look in the mirror for all of us, right? In which way, as a follower of Christ, is my life reflecting uh, the life and teaching of Christ? And as Gandhi, I mean, ironically unpacks that for the Christian clergyman uh, who tries to make it out to be a metaphor when he talks about turning the other cheek, Gandhi says, no, it's, it's taking a stand. It's saying, I won't hit you back, but I will not back down either. In that way, we resist evil. And in that way, people are changed and things change. Let's look at our text today. We're going to look at what Jesus had to say. We're in Matthew chapter 5, and we're starting in verse 38. Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus sets the bar pretty high. And in this, it has been said that enemy love, loving your enemy, is the thing, actually, that sets Christians apart from the other faiths and religions and philosophies of the world. Because most faiths will talk about, you know, integrity and not stealing and not lying and, and honoring God and, and loving, uh, loving people and serving the poor. Like, most religions have an element of that in there. But Jesus here takes this whole idea of love further because he says, like, there's no extra credit for loving your family. You're supposed to do that, and everybody does that. There's no extra credit for loving your own people. Everybody does that. That is just what we do as people. Everyone loves those close to them. Jesus says the mark of a Christ follower is to love even your enemies. And this was not abstract in Jesus' time. Jesus is living in a time when there are Samaritans trying to kill the Jewish people. There are Romans trying to kill the Jewish people. They are oppressed uh, by a violent and cruel empire. Like, these are not just dreams Jesus is talking about. Your enemies were right there in front of you. And there was a good chance you might die at their hand. And in the midst of that context, Jesus says, love even your enemies. And it's exactly what he did for us, because Scripture says we were enemies of God. But Jesus went to the cross and died for us, even when we were his enemies. Even as his enemies, he loved us and reached out to us. And Jesus teaches that to us here. There's a term you may have heard called red-letter Christians. It comes from 
a few decades ago, there was a, a group led by Tony Campolo and others, and they were very social justice-minded, and they were really calling for this, this kind of return to the teachings of Jesus in the States, and saying, you know, we honor the whole Bible, all scriptures God breathed, but as followers of Jesus, we want to follow the teachings of Jesus, and so they often preached on the teachings of Jesus, and as social justice advocates, they emphasized, you know, helping the poor and, and the least among us, and reaching out to those on the outskirts, and all that kind of thing, and Christianity Today, the magazine famously wrote an article calling them red-letter Christians. That's where the term came from. It was not a compliment. It was an insult. You red-letter Christians, you think that the teachings of Jesus are more important than other parts of the Bible. And Tony Campolo said, right, what's the problem? We are followers of Jesus. We honor the whole Bible, but we are followers of Jesus. And, and it didn't come out of nowhere. It comes from passages like this that we just read, where Jesus says, my words are more important than, than the old. My words are more important. There was no one that the Jewish people revered more than Moses. Moses had brought God's law. Moses had given them eye for an eye. And here's Jesus saying, Moses said eye for an eye, but I tell you, turn the other cheek. I tell you, love your enemies. I am superseding what was written before. Jesus is claiming his words are more important than the Old Testament and what has come before. And so it wasn't something that these guys just made up, but Tony Campolo, they just kind of grabbed that as a sign of honor, and they ran with that term, and they call themselves red-letter Christians now. They say, yes, as followers of Christ, we are looking to walk in the way of Christ. And so when it comes to violence, you know, Anabaptists, who were long before this term, obviously, uh, but were very much wired the same way, where they would say, okay, we understand that Joshua was violent in the Old Testament. We understand that David was violent in the Old Testament. But that's actually irrelevant, because this command of Jesus supersedes that, and Jesus is the one who says that. You've heard it said before, but now I tell you something new. And so they said, if Jesus has told us something new, and if Jesus has said it's more important than the old thing, if we're ever in those conflicts in Scripture, we're going to go with Jesus every single time because we're followers of Jesus. And so we want to follow the teaching and the way of Jesus. As we talk about pacifism, Anabaptists always use this phrase, pacifism is not passive. Uh, for, for whatever reason, the argument always comes back to, so you would do nothing then. If there was a war, if you saw a conflict, uh, when that board member and I were talking, he said, there's a woman across the street getting beaten up by a man. You just stand there and do nothing. And Anabaptists would always say, no, pacifism's not passive. The word passive and pacifism are not the same thing, but it sounds exactly the same. And so I think pacifism sort of gives an impression of passivity, of doing nothing. If there's a couple in my office and we're counseling and, and the wife says, my husband's passive, that's usually not a compliment, right? That's usually, it means they're, they do nothing, they're unengaged, they, they just sit there, they don't discuss, they don't engage. And so the word passive is not usually a good thing. And because of that, we've sort of moved away from that word passivism just because there's so much misunderstanding with it. Uh, and you'll hear the word peacemakers a lot more, the peace teaching of Jesus, the peacemaking teaching. But pacifism itself, it means to pacify, which means to end conflict. It doesn't mean to be passive. It means to actively end conflict to actively bring an end where there is strife. It, it means, really, we're going to invent a word, to peaceify 
We are to peaceify the world. We are to peaceify a conflict. We are to peaceify where there's death and destruction. Uh, and we are to bring peace wherever we go as followers of the Prince of Peace. So it's not one or the other, right? Where it's you either have to take up arms and kill or you sit around and do nothing. And what Anabaptists would say is in between those two extremes, there are a world of other things we can do to stand up to evil and to resist without participating in violence and death and destruction. And so there's a lot of other ways that we can approach these things. We're going to get more into some of those specifics next week. But what happens as we talk about this too is people automatically kind of jump to, some of you are there already actually, you're going, but what about ISIS? But what about Hitler? But what about when you see that woman beaten up across the street? What about if someone breaks into your house? What about if someone attacks your kids? And those are hugely important questions and we'll get into some of those next week. But what happens as we start to talk about this topic is that we want to run to the, but what about first? And the minute you start to say, we're talking about peace and nonviolence, but what about? And because we all have these instincts for self-preservation and to protect our kids and all of these things are very real, the but what about can get pretty emotional, which is why I think that board member got so emotional because the, the way he was taking it was you're supposed to do nothing while evil is allowed to flourish. And again, that's not at all what we're talking about. But I'm just going to encourage you, we need to answer this question for, sh for sure, but to stick a pin in this, because we don't usually, as we're talking about how to approach the world and how to live out the scriptures and the teachings of Jesus, we don't usually start with, but what about, on anything. We usually start with, what does the Bible say? Right? That's our starting point. What does the Bible say? And then from there, we wrestle through, what does it look like in real life? We don't start with, what does it look like in real life, and then go back to the Bible and try to force it into it or dismiss it because the but what about is so hard. We say, I'm going to start with what the Word says, and then we're going to wrestle through this. And when it comes to the teachings of Jesus and the New Testament, I actually think the teachings for peace and nonviolence are, are pretty clear. I actually think they're hard to argue. But then I also think it's maybe the hardest thing to figure out what does it look like in real life, right? Because then you have to go, okay, but ISIS is real, and there's real evil in this world, and there are people who want genocide, and there's people who are going to break into our houses sometimes, and so we do need to figure out what it looks like in real life. We'll wrestle with that a bit more next week. Today we're going to see what the scripture has to say about it. So what I want to do now as we uh, continue through is just let you see the Christian pacifist argument. Where does it come from? Uh, where in scripture does this whole idea come about? And then uh, we will talk a little bit more about what that can look like next week. So starting off, first of all, there was no violence in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, God creates in perfection. There is no sin there yet when it's first created. When Adam and Eve first show up on the scene, creation is good. They are good. Everything is good. There is no death. There is no evil. There is no sin. There is no violence. And so if you remember in the sexuality series we did last year, we used the phrase a lot, go back to the garden, right? When you want to see the way God intended things to be, we go back to the Garden of Eden. That's the way he wanted it to be before sin and evil entered the world. So there was no violence in the garden before sin and evil entered the world. Therefore, we would say violence is a result of sin and a result of evil in the world. It's not the way God wanted it as his first choice. So there is no violence in the garden. Garden. There will be no violence in heaven. And this is uh, very thoroughly documented, Old Testament and New Testament. Here's one verse from Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, 
which says, In eternity in heaven they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. It's clear uh, over and over and over again, and through the book of Revelation as well, that one of the great marks of heaven is that violence goes away, that warfare goes away, that conflict goes away, that heaven will be a place of peace. So there was no violence in the Garden of Eden when God created creation, and there's not going to be any violence in heaven. And so from that, we conclude that violence exists because of evil and sin and the devil. And I don't think anybody would disagree with that. And so where we would probably disagree, maybe, as Christians, is what that means for us. And so uh, what a lot of Catholics and Protestants would say, yes, of course, violence is evil, but sometimes it's a necessary evil in order to resist evil. Uh, Evil has to be stopped, and sometimes it's just a necessary evil that you need to do to do that. And Anabaptists would just come at that a different way and say, as followers of Christ, we don't want in any way to participate with evil and, and what is of sin and what is of Satan. So we're going to find other ways to resist evil uh, in a more loving and a more peaceful way. So there was no violence in the garden. There will be no violence in heaven. Uh, Jesus taught peace and nonviolence. We read in our text today, Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies. And so it's hard to justify how love your enemies can also mean harm your enemies. Love your enemies can also mean kill your enemies. Uh, it's hard to put those two things together. And so it comes to the matter of what does loving your enemies then look like? And, and can it include violence? Jesus seems to be suggesting that's not what love looks like. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, and it's worth noting, it's not blessed are the peacekeepers. It's blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who actively work for peace, who look to peacify the world. They have the blessing of God upon them as they do that. Jesus says in Luke 6, 27, do good to those who hate you. Uh, Not retaliate, not attack, do good to those who hate you. So what does that mean for us as Christ followers? Matthew 7, 12, in everything do to others what you would have them do to you, what we call the golden rule. And I don't want to be killed by other people. I don't want to be attacked by other people. I don't want violence committed against me. So how can I do that to someone else is, is part of where Anabaptists would land in the peace teachings of Jesus. Mark 12, 31, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, And Jesus would talk in the parable of the the Good Samaritan that your neighbor means even your enemy, even the person who is against you, even the person who wishes you harm, even that person you are to love as you love yourself. In John 18, 36, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of heaven is different than the kingdom of the world. We talked a bit about that last week. And he goes on in that passage to say, if my kingdom were like this world, my people would pick up swords and they would fight. But because my kingdom is not of this world, my people don't do that. And so there's more we could talk about. I just gave a few there just to give you a taste of it. Uh, But Jesus would seem pretty clearly to teach a message of peace and nonviolence. Not only did he teach it, Jesus lived peace and nonviolence. In that clip we saw, the priest says, turn the other cheek, that's got to be a metaphor. And that's just a hard place to land when Jesus didn't treat it metaphorically. Jesus lived it out very literally. Jesus did turn the other cheek. Jesus did take a blow and not retaliate. Jesus did lay down his life for the sake of loving others. Jesus did all of these things. And he didn't do it uh, complaining, and he didn't do it, he, he willingly chose to go the loving way rather than the way of revenge and retaliation. He lives this out. He lives out what loving your enemies look like, even as they are in the process of crucifying him on the cross. He is loving them in that moment. And so in doing that, and this is what Gandhi was getting at in the, pass- in the clip that we saw, 
that as Jesus, I mean, he doesn't uh, back down. He doesn't compromise anything. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't inflict violence on anybody. And somehow in having violence done to him, everything changes. The cross changes everything. And as he walks the way of love, and as he takes a beating that he doesn't deserve, and as he even is willing to lay down his life out of that love for people that Scripture says were his enemies, that is what transforms everything. For Gandhi, that sort of love was what transformed a nation. For Martin Luther King, that sort of love was what transformed a culture. That even willing to lay down your life for the sake of other people in love, that's what changes things. And that is modeled for us so beautifully on the cross. Jesus manages not just to teach it, he manages to live it out. Jesus also rebuked his followers when they promoted violence. There's a couple stories in the scripture. One's in Luke chapter 9. The sons of Zebedee are, get, are mad at a Samaritan town. And then they say, you want us just to call down fire and destroy them all? They say that like that's just nothing. Like we can just do that apparently. Hey Lord, do you want us to just call down the wrath of God on that place? And Jesus rebukes them, scripture says. He turns and he rebukes them. That the, the, the way of Jesus is not going to be the way of death and destruction. Uh, famously, at the end of Jesus' time here on earth, as he's being arrested in Matthew chapter 26, uh, Peter, always the zealous, sort of on-fire-for-God guy, pulls out a sword and swings it at one of the people coming to arrest him, cuts off a guy's ear, and Jesus rebukes him, saying, Put your sword back in its place, for all who live by the sword will die by it. And it, by adding on that second part, he removes our ability to say, well, Jesus just didn't want a revolution because he had to go to the cross, which is what some people will say. No, he makes it part of a much bigger principle that violence brings violence. Violence creates violence. Violence spurs on violence. There's a cycle of retaliation. You kill my brother, I have to kill your brother. And that makes you mad, so you kill my son, so I have to kill your son. And nations do this, and peoples do this. Uh, I was watching uh, Hatfields and McCoys. Did you ever see that? It's a miniseries on Netflix. And it's all just this cycle of violence, and, and each one feeling fully justified that even though I've killed 12 of your family members, you've killed 13 of mine, so I get to come back now and kill one more of yours. So the sword brings the sword. And we see this in history. We see this in real life. We see, uh, you know, as we talk about this issue, and it always comes back to Hitler every single time. Hitler's always the one that comes up. And I think that's because Hitler, I mean, he's, he's pretty much pure evil, right? You look at, I want to wipe out the Jews. I want to take over the world. Like, that's the most horrific thing, uh, certainly of the 21st century. And the argument comes back, well, violence was needed to stop Hitler, right? Somebody needed to stop Hitler, and that's true. And that violence came, and it stopped him. And again, we'll get more into this next week. A hundred million people die in that conflict, a lot of them women and children and civilians. But the violence does stop him, but it doesn't stop the violence for good. The conflict, World War II stops but in order to win that war, America has to drop a couple of atomic bombs on Japan. Tens of thousands of civilians are killed. And Russia sees that, and they can't allow America to be the only power in the world that has atomic bombs. So they develop atomic bombs, and then other nations start developing atomic bombs. And as that happens, Russia and America uh, go into what they call the Cold War. It was never an open warfare between the two countries. No one wanted that because it would turn nuclear, potentially, and nobody wanted to see that happen. So what they do for the rest of the 20th century is America and Russia fight wars through other nations. A war happens in Korea. Russia backs one side, America backs the other. Tens of thousands die. A war happens in Vietnam. America backs one side, Russia backs another. A war happens in Central America. America backs one side, Russia backs the other. So they fight these wars anyway. People keep dying. The violence doesn't stop. 
One of the places they fight a war is in Afghanistan because the Russians invade Afghanistan. And America doesn't want to fight Russia directly, and so what America does instead is starts funding the Muslims who are there resisting the Russians. And one of the young men who is fighting on the Muslim resistance side is named Osama bin Laden. So America gives him weapons and trains him in how to kill. And then as that conflict ends, uh, Osama bin Laden gets upset that America has invaded Iraq in the first war, uh, that Muslims are dying, and so he turns his wrath against America. The sword that America gave him has now come back uh, in embassy bombings and the U.S. coal bombing uh, and, of course, 9-11. So America then goes and invades Afghanistan because they have to deal with that, and eventually that war spills over into Iraq, and Osama bin Laden gets killed, and al-Qaeda gets crushed, but al-Qaeda doesn't disappear. The ones who are left just morph, and that turns into ISIS, and ISIS is doing suicide attacks all over Europe. And it ends up happening over and over again, this cycle, that, that we attack them because they've attacked us, and we kill some of them, and then they need revenge, and so they attack us. And then we have to respond to that, and so we attack them. The sword begets the sword. Violence begets violence. It goes around and around and around and around. So Jesus says, put your sword away. You can draw a direct line from what's happening today to World War II. From World War II, you can draw a direct line to how World War I helped trigger World War II. From that, you can go back to the wars in the 1800s between uh, Prussia and France that helped fuel the tensions that led to World War I. The violence might stop a conflict, but the violence itself doesn't stop. It just moves into a new direction. And so Jesus says, put your sword away to his followers. So Jesus teaches nonviolence. He lives nonviolence. He rebukes his followers who promote violence. Uh, and then the next part of the argument is that Jesus' followers are to follow after the ways of Jesus. And again, the fact that Joshua in the Bible is violent or David in the Bible is violent isn't as important as the fact that Jesus suggests another way, Anabaptists would say. So Jesus' followers, if we are to call ourselves Christians, we are going to follow in the way of Christ. First uh, John 2.6, whoever claims to live in Jesus must live as Jesus did. Peter backs this up uh, a few books later. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And so uh, both John and Peter would seem to be affirming this idea that to walk after Jesus is to follow after the teachings and the way of Jesus. And even though there is scripture that you can find that would suggest something else, that Jesus is the most important thing is something Anabaptists have always believed. The rest of the New Testament, beyond just the teachings of Jesus, confirms the peace teachings of Jesus. I'm just going to give you a couple here. 1 Peter 3, 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Uh, Romans 12, 19. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And that's what Peter just said Jesus did. Jesus just trusted that God would deal with it. And it's not to say that we do nothing in the face of evil and conflict, but we don't need to revenge ourselves because God will make sure that that happens for us. He's a better judge than we are. 1 Thessalonians 5, 15. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. So not just good for fellow Christians, but for everybody that you encounter. And so there's just a few there, but the New Testament backs up uh, the teachings of Jesus on this, and the apostles did as well. 
And as we know, most of the apostles, if not all of them, laid down their lives for their faith. They never retaliated. They never fought back. Uh, they took seriously the teachings of Jesus. Not only that, early church history confirms the peace teachings of Jesus. For the first 300 years of the church's existence, uh, they are absolutely peacemaking. They are absolutely pacifists. They took the words of Jesus quite seriously. And so in the first 300 years, we have these records of the people arguing and debating about a whole lot of things. They're trying to figure out what books are going to go in the New Testament. They're trying to figure out what exactly is the nature of the Trinity. They're trying to figure out what exactly is the nature of Jesus as the Son, human, and God at the same time. What does that look like? And so we have these records of these councils and debates and discussions, and they are debating and arguing about everything relating to the matter of faith. And one thing that never shows up as a matter of debate is the issue of peacemaking. They just, they never fought about that. It was just not something that came up. They just said, we're going to follow, as we understand it, the teachings of Jesus. And so here's just, again, just a few examples of this. Uh, Justin Martyr in 150 AD writes, We who once murdered each other indeed no longer wage war against our enemies. Moreover, so as to not bear false witness before our interrogators, we cheerfully die confessing Christ. So we can't kill for our cause, but we are willing to die for our cause. It's so far removed from anything we face here in Canada today. Clement of Alexandria in 195 says, the church is an army of peace which sheds no blood. And then Origen in 230 AD says, we no longer take swords against a nation, nor do we learn anymore to make war, having become sons of peace for the sake of Jesus, who is our Lord. And so this was the early testimony for 300 years uh, after Jesus walked this earth. And then what ends up happening in 312 is Constantine, the Roman emperor, becomes a Christian. Uh, we're not sure if he actually became a Christian. He might have just claimed to become a Christian for political reasons. Christianity was continuing to spread and become more popular. But he became a Christian, at least in name, and now we have a problem where for 300 years we have followed the peace teachings of Jesus, but now we have an emperor who is a Christian, and emperors sometimes need to go to war. Emperors sometimes need to defend the nation. Emperors sometimes need to engage in warfare. Emperors sometimes, not even because they have to, sometimes they want to go to war because they're bent on conquest or whatever. And so there the church begins to wrestle through, okay, what do we do with this now? The idea of just war comes up from St. Augustine. And uh, again, we'll touch on this a bit more next week. But everything changes after that. Uh, the emperor gets saved, and the peace teachings go away. And then Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire, and within about a, a year or so of that, we have our first written uh, record of Christians torturing and executing a heretic, uh, someone who didn't believe what they believed. And the nonviolent movement of Jesus is now doing to, to pagans what others used to do to Christians. Uh, and violence has become a part of what the church does now. It's not our proudest moment uh, in the history of the world. Last point, followers of the Prince of Peace are to actively bring peace to the earth peacefully. Uh, and so Anabaptists have always said, we can't do nothing. We have to be willing to die to resist evil. We have to be willing to die for the sake of other people. We have to be willing to stand up to evil and injustice wherever we see it. But we're going to choose peaceful means rather than violent means. We're going to choose that way to do it. Uh, when the Vietnam War was going on in the 60s, there was uh, the birth of the hippie movement, who were, who were famously nonviolent, and, and not necessarily because they were Christians at all. But they sort of made fun of a little bit the mentality that says, you know, we're going to fight for peace as the, the ends. That was the mentality of the time. We, we want peace, but we have to fight for it. And the hippie said, right, let's have peace even if we have to slaughter everybody around us to get it. 
And so the Anabaptists said, peace isn't just the end that we're going for. Peace is actually going to be the means by which we get there. We are going to follow the Prince of Peace by peacefully working towards peace rather than violently working towards peace. Romans 12, 21 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the Anabaptist says, We're not going to participate in the even necessary evil of violence and warfare. We're not going to participate in that. We are going to choose a, a good way, a better way, a more peaceful way to step up. And, and again, this verse doesn't let us sit aside and do nothing. This verse doesn't let us sit aside. We are to overcome evil. It's not a passive thing. Passive, Pacifism is not passive. We are to overcome evil with what is good. And we are peacefully going to use peaceful means to get there. So just to sum up as we get ready to close today, uh, sorry, the text is a bit small. So this is the peacemaking argument, if you've never heard it before. There was no violence in the Garden of Eden. There will be no violence in heaven. And because of that, we conclude that violence is not good. It's not something that God wants. Jesus taught peace and nonviolence. Jesus lived peace and nonviolence. Jesus rebuked his followers when they promoted violence. Jesus' followers should follow after the ways of Jesus. And that has always been an Anabaptist distinctive, that as Christians, we are to follow Christ and the teachings of Christ and the way of Christ. Whoa, I did not do any of that. The New Testament confirms the peace teachings of Jesus. Early church history for the first 300 years confirms the peace teachings of Jesus. Followers of the Prince of Peace are to actively bring peace to the earth peacefully, according to the scriptures. So that is the peacemaking argument if, you, if you've never heard it before. Now, if you disagree with that, and I know there are those here who do disagree with that, uh, there is a wrestling match that both sides have to go through. If you disagree with it, what you can't do is ignore these points. You've got to do something with these points, especially the teachings and example of Jesus. And so if we are to say that, uh, you know, I, I think violence is justified and I am allowed to engage in it, you've got to figure out what you're going to do with these points. And if you're okay with these points, then what you need to figure out with then is, well, what do I do then when violence arises and conflict arises and, and Hitler arises and ISIS arises? What does that mean for me then to peacify nonviolently? we got to figure out what that looks like. And I get this is a hard teaching. As I say, I think actually the scripture is pretty clear. Living it out is very, very difficult. But I'll also just throw out there that there's no other teaching of Jesus that we ever just put aside because it's hard to imagine in real life. We actually don't get to do that. And so we look at the words of Jesus and we wrestle through it. And as I said at the beginning, I'm inviting you into the wrestling match as we start to do this and as we continue this next week. So... Uh, any questions at all about anything? We have an email address, questions at meadowbrook.ca. I know this is a tough topic and we threw a lot at you, but uh, if you have questions, if you can get them to me by Wednesday or so, I'll try to answer some of those next Sunday uh, as we engage in this topic a little bit more. So questions at meadowbrook.ca, that email address is in your uh, bulletin as well. What does it mean to love your enemies? What does it mean to do good to those even who hate you? to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who mistreat you. If that's what Jesus taught and if that's what Jesus lived, what does that mean for us? That is the wrestling match. But we also know from Scripture that as Jesus loved us, even though we were sinners, as we were his enemies in that sense, Jesus loved us anyway. And in the cross, he perfectly shows us what love can look like. And in the cross, everything changes. That self-sacrificial, nonviolent, peaceful love that he shows us changes everything. 
And so we don't want to just throw that away and say, yeah, but real life is this, and there's really ISIS, therefore, we want to we bring those two things together. We can't dismiss the words of Jesus. But what does that look like as we wrestle through this together? The Bible also tells us that the cross is God's wisdom, but it looks foolish in the eyes of the world. And sometimes the ways of God don't make sense in the eyes of the world, because the eyes of the world say, you hurt me, I hurt you. And so the, the cross is foolishness. Scripture says to the world. And yet in that cross, there is perfect love summarized. And I want to show you one more short clip just as we get ready to wrap up with worship. And it's Martin Luther King, who was a Christian minister, a nonviolent uh, peace teachings of Jesus for sure. And it's not like racism got solved through his life and through his ministry, but, uh, but a lot of institutional racism got removed where black people couldn't vote and couldn't eat in certain restaurants and couldn't go to certain schools. Uh, they took a stand against that. They said, we can't do nothing, but we're not going to be violent and we are going to win over you as we lay our lives down for this cause. And so this is him preaching in a sermon. Uh, it's a bit hard to hear, so we have the words up on the screen as well. And he starts off talking about the love that God has shown us at the cross, which he calls the tree uh, in the story. Take a look at what Martin Luther King has to say. That is a little tree planted on a little hill. And on that tree hangs first service, every preacher feels lame next to Martin Luther King, so sorry you don't get that here every single week, but Martin Luther King did lay his life down for the cause, and the world changed through what he did. Gandhi laid his life down for the cause, and the world changed through what he did. Jesus laid down his life for the cause, 
And the world changed and we changed because of what he did, that even though we were his enemies, he loved us anyway. And he reached out his hand to us. And we want to worship him for a couple more minutes before we go. Would you stand with me, please, as we get ready to close? You know, when you think about the example of Jesus and all he went through and the way he was treated and the way he responded towards these people that were his enemies was with love. That's just what it was. And I often reflect on that. And I look at my life and go, there's people that cut me off in traffic I want to bring harm to. And yet Jesus never did that to anybody. And as you think about your life and you think about this week coming up and you think about how we're supposed to respond to people, whether it's ISIS or whatever the case may be, but how do we respond? And it should be out of love as best as we can. Now, I sound, sound strange, but Pastor Chris talked about that this morning, that we can't do this without the love of Jesus. We can't love our enemies with the love of Jesus. And only God can make the difference in our hearts. So as you go about your life and your week, if there's somebody in your life you need to make right with, that you consider an enemy to you, I encourage you uh, to make those things right. I have a saying in my life I use, no loose ends in the kingdom. And what I mean by that, if there's a relational gap in my life, I need to make right. And I think if I can do it, I will make it right. So as you think about your week coming up in your relationships, maybe the Holy Spirit will bring something into your life that we need to look at and say, that person is an enemy to me, but how can I show the love of Christ? Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, thank you that there is no violence in the garden. There will be no violence in heaven. And that, Jesus, you taught nonviolence. And I pray, Jesus, as we think about that in our life, whether it's physical violence or the violence is even in our heart, the darkness that's there when we think of people in our lives that have brought us harm. I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would bring a sense of reconciliation, forgiveness, and healing in those things that have happened to us. Give us your love. Give us your wisdom. Give us your courage to walk alongside people that may rub us the wrong way, that we may consider an enemy. But Lord, help us to have your love and your insight to the power of your spirit. Thank you for each one. And as we dive into this week, Lord, open those doors, show us where you're leading us, and empower us with love, joy, hope, and peace. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week. And if you need prayer, a few of us will be available after service.